So two guys walk into a church, and the first guy's rubbing his eye, to which the second guy replies, Man, you got something in your eye. That looks really nasty. Ooh, that's a bad speck in there. Do you want me to take that out? To which the first guy replies, isn't there something you'd better do first? To which the second guy replies, I can't see what. I guess I'm drawing a plank. <laughs> I expected groans. It's, it's amazing there was a lot. That is probably the worst joke ever told from a pulpit. But it fits in. Jesus tells it a lot better. Now, uh, if you have your bulletins, as we say, you've got the uh, anchor text. And then underneath that, you'll have all our supporting text. Things underlined to help you to follow where we're thinking. And we're walking through parables. And we're in the parables that deal with um, your lifestyle as a Christian. And we covered the Ten Talents last week, which is actually very close cousin to this. Now we're into this. Uh, Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite? First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you to pieces. Now Jesus is a carpenter, so not surprising he refers to some of his carpenter ways and sets a few basic truths for us uh, dealing with spiritual living, and it's a complete metaphor in wood. And there are two words that are used here, just to get perspective of what he's talking about. When we talk spec, um, the word is karphos in, in the Greek, and it does refer to what you would probably think. Specks of sawdust, specks of sawdust in there. And uh, <coughs> the, uh, the specks of sawdust really stand for the um, significant, but we might say smaller aspects of our sin nature. Now the average carphos, the average speck of sawdust is, if you didn't already know, 15 microns. There, there's a, something to amaze your friends with if they, if they ask. Now, to give you some perspective on that, in this little pile, and I worked this math by myself. I should have called you, Pastor Chris, but I tried this out. 
And it seems that for this little pile of uh, a few centimeters of sawdust, there's uh, well over 2,000 specks in there. 2,000 specks of sawdust. And there's no question, if you've ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye, it's nothing to laugh at. It's, uh, it's serious, it's irritating. As a matter of fact, you can get small things in your eye that if you don't address them, at some point you probably end up with an infection or scratch cornea, maybe even go blind. So Jesus isn't saying having a speck in your eye doesn't matter. He's just setting up some priorities. Now, the plank is actually, and people say, well, what's the real word in there? So I want to give this to you. Dakos in the um, Greek, the original word that's used there in the writing of it, really means a beam. And that's why I brought in my trusty, somewhat shortened beam. It's, it's referring to a large piece of timber that you would probably use to make a roof. So you're talking a pretty huge piece of wood there. 15 microns beam. That's the difference we're talking here. Now, of course, there's some slapstick to that. Who could walk around with this in their eye and not notice? Well, not in the physical world, but I'll tell you what, in the spiritual world, in the emotional world, in our mental and heart world, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. And in that case, it's not so funny. It gets pretty serious, actually. So in our walk through the parables, we've, we were in the Ten Talents last week, so we moved from the servant of God to this week to the brother of your fellow servants. Last week we were dealing with this relationship, and now we're dealing with this relationship. There's a principle of sameness, though, that goes through it all, and by this is what I mean by sameness. Maybe you remember this from the Ten Talents, but... The servants multiplied the precious resource they had, the one given by the Lord. And what did they multiply? The same resource that they were given. Uh, there was at the end the bad servant. And how does he get judged? He gets judged by the same standard he really put on his Lord. And this week we continue in that idea of standards and judgment and all of that stuff. Except now we're not talking about a judging of God, which we do, but a judging of each other. Ooh, it's going to get all hard on the toes this morning. And we're going to uh, start with the most, um, if you were to go out, man on the street, and ask the average person what Bible verse they know, they would probably be the opening line to this parable is now officially the most known Bible verse uh, in the world. Judge not that you be not judged. That's what you're very likely to hear. And right along with that, unfortunately, is it is also the most misquoted passage used by people today. So by the time we're done here, we're not going to finish on this parable today. I'll just let you know. Uh, but we're going to make a really good start at it. And here's a clip from an article. It's, it's entitled that very thing, The Most Popular Bible Verse Among Unbelievers. It's by, uh, the article was by a guy named David Kaywood in Gospel Relevance. Just a, a summary, but he says this in there. For years, 
John 3.16 was the most popular Bible verse in the world. But there's another Bible verse that has surpassed John 3.16 in popularity, especially among unbelievers. Which one? The answer is Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. I'm getting this, he says, from D.A. Carson in his commentary on John. The thing that's striking is that Carson's commentary was published in 1991. So it's not like Carson thought this, say, 10 years ago, when he was still um, just really started to notice the rise of secularization in the West. No, this was almost for three decades. So the popular saying, judge not, has been the big number one hit for decades now in the secular world. And this is significant. I'll tell you why. This passage, this parable, sits at the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. What's the Sermon on the Mount, really? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is where Jesus lays down all the ground rules. And I say ground rules, the basic, the foundational rules of what it is to walk with God. These are the basics that are being shared here. Uh, what does he share there? He talks about the Beatitudes. He talks about how to forgive, how to pray, how to approach life, how not to approach life, and what it looks like to be a genuine God follower. And so here, tucked in between, do not worry about this life, and ask, seek, and knock, you find this parable, and you find these words. Do not judge baseline whatever this means this is a baseline a foundational principle for what it means to walk with God at all pretty important then what does it mean what's he really saying well I can see looking at the parable we could maybe entertain for a moment three possible options first it could mean just what it says Never judge anyone under any circumstances. Just don't do it. Why? Because God says don't ever judge anybody, nowhere, no how. Second option is, is kind of a middle of the ground. It's never judge anyone beyond the standards by which you wish to be judged. And then there's a third option in there as well. There is a right and a wrong way or a right and a wrong type of judgment that the Christ follower exercises. So which would it be? Let's, let's just look at each one a little bit. It says judge not, so I, we'd all probably start there. Well, then shouldn't I just not judge at all? Now, isn't that what it's saying? But we run into some problems really quick. If it really means don't ever judge in any way, form, shape, situation, never judge, because it causes trouble even before we ever get out of the parable. For instance, Speck beam. There's a judgment going on in my mind and in your mind telling you you're not mixing up a speck with a beam. There's some level of judgment between those two things going on. And the conclusion, well, when we get to that, it's going to be fun. Because the conclusion itself, if it's hard in the beginning, it's impossible in the end without uh, the idea of some form of judgment because we're talking about what is holy. 
Who's a swine? Who's a dog? What, what's going on in here? And we'll find out that all the stuff that's going on is being backed up in other parts of the New Testament. In pointing out the path of the Christ walk, Jesus warns this, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, got the picture? It's, if you're a sheep, you better be a smart one. Although, I think, Kevin, you would argue the point there is no such thing as a smart sheep, right? <laughs> but we better be something because we're among wolves. Therefore, we are told this, be wise as serpents, be very, very wise, but yet remain as harmless as doves. And then it goes on, beware of men, and it mentions different things in there. In one form of the, or the other, the Christian walk is a long chain of judgment calls. The Christian is making judgment calls all the time. And it's impossible to live the Christ life and never exercise judgment of any kind in any way. It's just, not, if that's what we're called to do, and we look at the whole picture of Scripture, that leaves us with two points. Either Jesus is schizophrenic, and he doesn't really know what he's saying, or it's acceptable for Scripture to conflict with other Scripture. And if that's not the case, then this answer is not possible. Well, how about the second one? Only judge to the limit you want to be judged. That's actually some pretty good advice. It's not a bad starting point, is it? The thing is, it can turn into a really great loophole, too. All you have to do is set the bar low enough that you can always sail over it. I call it the, uh, the, the Jerry Springer effect. You know, it's, you know, anybody who watches those shows, or at least I'm not as bad as that guy or that couple on there, you set the bar down. So as long as I'm not that bad, I'm doing okay. And, and so I'll set the same bar for everyone else. If, if, if you're doing better than Jerry Springer, you're okay. You're, you're on your way to heaven. Well, there's a couple of principles that come together we better consider with this. First, there's a blessing of understanding. There's a blessing of understanding that God opens to all who are His. 1 Corinthians 2.11 No one knows the things of God, of course they don't, except the Spirit of God, yes. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Which means knowledge of God is available to you and I. It, we, it is open to us. So we can have knowledge. Every Christian can know at some level. And the second thing ties in with this because what you know you're accountable for. What you know or what you can know you are accountable for. James 4.17 To him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, to him, it is sin. So if you know better than uh, the standard of Jerry Springer show, but you never talk about it, or you never live up to that level of judging yourself or anyone else, according to James, it's sin. Letting people go in silence. So how do the two truths apply if you put them together in the real life? Well, the Old Testament, we can go all the way back there because this is no new principle. 
Uh, Proverbs 24, 23, it is not good to show partiality in judgment. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, him the people will curse, nations will abhor him. Think about it for a second. If you, if you and I set the bar so low that like, hey, whatever, and we're not talking the outside world, we're talking about brothers and sisters, and we remain silent on stuff we know is hurting them, we're in this category. We are essentially by default saying what is wicked is okay. Well, that wouldn't work either very well, would it? So that leads us down to the last, number three of the options. There is a wrong and a right form of judgment. There is a wrong and a right form of judgment. Now, if we stop listening at the first line of a parable, then we see other verses that start to conflict and it, it becomes confusing. What's God really teaching? John 7, 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. So according to Jesus, there is a wrong type of judgment and then there is a right type of judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do, not, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now, keep this in context. This is a bunch of people within the church having arguments, not being able to come to some type of a judgment call on what they're talking about. And he points this out. He says, do you not know your destiny that that God's people will be there involved in the judgment of all people of all time. At that point, in that day, that will be our destiny. And by our destiny, then he does show that in the present, we're supposed to do some level of judgment. We're supposed to do something. Within the scripture, we find some pretty serious judgment calls within the church family. Let me throw out some examples. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. It is actually reported, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. For I indeed have already judged. I have already judged. Him who has so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, those, that whole line has to go together. You'll end up out of context. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus it's a last-ditch effort to save this individual. 2 Timothy 2.25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Point being is this, is that, yeah, we'll get into reasons and motivations, all that type of stuff, but... Right now, there is a big one. There's something we're getting at. There's no question that judgment is a necessary practice. 
in the church. There's going to be some form of judgment that must be carried out. But there are very, very particular qualities that make the difference between wrong and right judgment. The wrong judgment that will come back to haunt you and the right judgment that just might save a brother or sister from terrible uh, tragedy. So the burning question then becomes, what actually constitutes wrong and right judgment? Because it has to be this option. Well, the good news is this. We'll find from this parable and the supporting text through uh, uh, our exploration that there's a lot to be said. Now, the bad news of it is, is that there's a lot to be said. So we're not going to say it all today. We're going to uh, extend this over at least one more service, and that will uh, take us down a few Sundays, because next Sunday's an alternative uh, message. But as we look at this and we come to a conclusion, here's where we are. Here's what I will propose to you, that the parable as it weaves together with a broader scope of biblical truths, there are seven distinguishing qualities, seven distinguishing qualities that will tell you you are on the path of wrong judgment or right judgment. And the, this Sunday was more setting it up than anything. So we'll only hit one of them today. And one of the qualities, uh, or number one I'm going to use is, I'm just calling it this, the original words. The original words. What do you mean by that? Well, in the original Greek, there are at least three different words for judgment. And I think for Greek readers back in the day, this would have been a lot easier to follow than it is for us today. But we'll start there. There's the word judge as it's used, do not judge. There is the word krino, and in, in the Greek, when somebody used this word, what they were talking about was a mental or a judicial decision, an implication, but the tone is punitive. It is, I'm making a decision in order to condemn. I'm making this decision in order to punish. I'm doing this to avenge. I'm doing this to condemn, to damn, to decree. Those are the, the, the feelings, the undertones of when that word is used. And so we're being told, don't condemn your brother. Don't punish your brother. Don't damn your sister. Don't avenge on your sister. That's what it's saying, as opposed to the other two words. Jesus said that to do right judgment. Uh, if you remember, as we talked in John 7, 24, do right judgment. And guess what? No surprise, it's a different word. It's not this harsh word that we're talking about. It is the word crisis. Crisis. And if you looked at it, you probably pronounce it crisis, but it's crisis. Again, it deals with accusation. It can even come to some punitive measure. But the idea in this word is not to avenge or to revenge or to condemn or to damn anyone. It's all about justice and injustice. What is just and what is unjust? In other words, it's an act of fair discernment. An act of fair discernment. So when we're looking at standards, when we're doing whatever it is we're looking at and saying, huh, that's right, that's wrong. Who in, 
21 years never looked at something and gone, that's not right. You're making a discernment. And if the idea in the Christian walk is that it'll be a fair one. But there's a third word, and it's actually my favorite of all of them. In Hebrews 5.14, it said, says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who are mature. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So much said in there. So much said. And this word uh, used here is diacresis. It, it adds the prefix dia, D-I-A, on there. And the dia means uh, through or by means or even across something. And the context in the powerful sentence comes down to this. Judge, okay. And we already know we're talking fair discernment, fair discernment. But do it by means of being mature, by being full age in your spiritual maturity, which you will reach by using your senses that are honed in spiritual discernment. There's a question for you. How do you hone your spiritual senses? What do you do to make yourself more sensitive to God? That'd be a great question. Just I'd love to hear everybody's answer on that sometime. Is what do you do to keep yourself sensitive and your senses, uh, if we were a Marvel comic, I guess we'd say our spidey senses would be tingling when God's telling us something. But what do we do for that? And then whatever that is gives us spiritual discernment. Being honed comes from a life in God's word. We know that. It comes from learning disciplines. And I heard a great message on fasting. And, and, and it was the beautiful thing about this. We think of fasting as, oh, don't eat some food or whatever. But the real thing behind fasting is whatever distracts you, whatever it is that distracts you, take a window of time and put it aside so that you can hear nothing but the Lord for that period of time. For some of us, it may be food. It's amazing when you don't eat and your metabolism slows down. You become sensitive to other things. Might be media. Can you imagine? I, I dare not even say this, but imagine if you put your, your cell phone down for an entire day and uh, did nothing but listen to the Lord. That's the kind of things we're talking about. And if we do things, then we become to know God. and. And we know more of the things we already know. Then we graduate to solid food, which feeds our ability to decreases. It feeds our ability to be able to discern with spiritual maturity. To discern with spiritual maturity. The bottom line comes down like this. No biblical maturity, no solid food. No solid food, no discernment. No discernment, no right judgment. It all goes together. There are six more qualities to cover, but right now, you know, this is the thing we learn in churches. We can 
run over things so quickly, so many principles, so many ideas so quickly, we take none of them to heart. So that's why in this morning, just to stop, there is a difference between crino and crisis. There's a difference between wrong judgment and right judgment. But there is judgment. There is a type of discernment that only comes when we're right with the Lord, when we have gone to solid food. Now, I wouldn't want to stop without putting this qualifier in, though. 1 Corinthians 5.12 tells us, we're not called to judge people outside the church. He clearly states, do not judge outside. We're meant to reach out to people outside the church, not to be judging them. What we are called to do is to judge each other. But be careful that it is right judgment. And in the right judgment, it won't be condemnation. It won't be vengeful or spiteful. It will be looking out for each other's back. Looking out for each other's back. Who else is going to tell you when you're just starting to slide on the rails maybe a little bit? That's what it's all about. Even within the parable, the second man isn't forbidden to take out that speck. It's just like, if somebody's coming at me like this, I said, you know, take care of your thing first and then maybe we'll let you work at my eye. But you're not going to do it with that in your eye. It's not going to work. Why? Because they cannot see clearly. They cannot see clearly. So the whole idea here isn't about being forbidden to inspect the speck. It's about priorities in how the healing is done. In our human limitations, let's face it, we all have specks. We're all dealing with them probably all the time. And we all know they can be crippling. It can be that thing in your life that is just like a piece of sawdust in your eye. And it's just like, it's not stopping you from doing things, but by golly, it's making it pretty hard. But that's not the first priority. The first priority is dealing with the beams, the things that are so huge, so blinding, and they come in so many forms, and I may say, in different seasons of life. You might be dealing with one huge aspect of your sin nature when you're 20. The one you're dealing with at 40 is a different one. And 60 is yet another. And 80 and so on. So we have to deal with those. Here's the thing with these beams in our eye. Do you think I can see the beam? Feel free to answer. I can't see it, so you have to say it. <laughs> that gives it. That kind of gives it away, doesn't it? Right, Ron, you've got it. Is something can be so huge and so close that we do not see it. And it's going to take one-on-one -on -one with God to deal with it. As a matter of fact, if it's really big and really close, we probably at least at first, won't even take advice from other Christians. We'll be offended. What do you mean there's a beam in my eye? No, there isn't. Well, yeah, there kind of is. Just ask anyone else in the church. They'll tell you it's there. But human nature, 
and we are human, we tend to, um, to, to bulk, to bristle at somebody pointing out the big things. So my proposal would be this, is that it has to start with you and God. It has to start on the one and one. And hopefully your senses that we were talking about early are home. And then we need Christ and the Spirit of God to do this eye surgery. Not so much I as in your head, but I, me, my. Even before we leave this morning, I wonder, make it worthwhile in just a moment of serious thought is, I have no doubt you have some of these in your eye. Maybe not 2,000 plus, but some of these in your eye. We're all dealing with them, and we need to. And we need to listen to brothers and sisters who would help us. But do we have some of these in our eye as well? How many beams are we dealing with?